Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, talking today about education and a wonderful new book entitled Resurgence. This is a book that if you're just reading for interest and for information, you could certainly enjoy it and engage with it. But its target audience is teachers and students in schools across the country as it provides outstanding resources to better include Indigenous voices in the classroom. So the book includes poetry, art, narratives that can work for students from grade one all the way up through high school and even, I think, into a post-secondary environment. And the book also includes wonderful resources specifically for teachers for incorporating Indigenous learning into your classrooms. So those guides provide questions and resources that you can use with students to both address and understand the content, while also creating an environment for supportive learning where the students have the opportunity to reflect and learn from these incredible resources. And the pieces in the book themselves they are from indigenous artists across the country. So there are very diverse voices in this book, diverse forms of art and communication. So there's so much here that uh, you know you can go through it from cover to cover if you want, but you can also go through it and find resources that work particularly for your classroom or that you yourself are personally interested in. Uh, I very much enjoyed going through this book and there are things that I have already taken from it that I am incorporating into some of the work that I do. So I can't recommend it enough. And I was fortunate enough to be joined by Christine Malat, who is one of the editors of the book. Uh, she was nice enough to take some time out of her Sunday afternoon to talk to me about the process of putting the book together, some of the resources that are included in the book, and how teachers can effectively use this in their classrooms and create more spaces for Indigenous voices within the education system across the country. So I really enjoyed the discussion. Hopefully you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Christine Malat. All right. And Christine Malat joins me now from Winnipeg. Christine, how are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Resurgence. As I said in the intro, it is a collection of works by uh, Indigenous writers and, and authors that is put together for uh, a really interesting purpose. I, I felt as I was going through the book and reading more about it, that part of this is based off of your and the team's uh, experience in education and trying to perhaps fill some of the gaps within curricula across the country. So if we could go back to maybe the origins of the, the project, how does your experience within education, working with young people, how does that start to lead towards wanting to put together an edited collection in this style? Yeah, well, I would say it even started before then. It probably started with my experience um, growing up in the public education system here in Winnipeg as an Indigenous person and not really learning anything about Indigenous people. We know we didn't learn any 
anything about the history or culture, current topics when I was in school. I only ever read one book by an Indigenous author, um, and that was April Raintree. And I re- remember what a powerful um, experience that was for me and, and how moved I was by, by reading that book. And so when I became a teacher, that was always something at the back of my mind that like I want to introduce my students to more Indigenous content and perspectives. Um, and so it really started there. And I got this opportunity. I was contacted by Portage and Maine Press. And uh, they had this idea that they wanted to create an anthology of Indigenous perspectives from poetry, artwork, essays, um, stories, and more. And then they needed my help. And my co-editor, Katya Ferguson, is another teacher here in Winnipeg. And they really wanted us to uh, bridge the content into the classroom and make it easy for teachers to implement and to teach this stuff uh, in their classrooms. Well, I'm curious about getting back to that experience that you had growing up and going through the education system and not really having the ready access to a lot of material by uh, Indigenous writers, uh, Indigenous Indigenous artists. I'm curious because that's something that someone like me kind of takes for granted that uh, it's not something that I'm, I'm really conscious of a lot because a lot of the material that was presented to me in school is by people who look like me, right? So how do you become conscious of that? Or, or like, I'm just curious about what the experience is like when you don't see yourself reflected as you're growing up and, and how that maybe shapes your perspective. You got into it a little bit as a teacher that wanting to share those with your students, but, you know, just as a student growing up, like what is the the challenge associated with that and how does it make you, or did it make you feel growing up and not seeing yourself reflected in the material in the classroom? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And I'm not even sure that I noticed it until I read April Raintree. And until I was like, holy, like this is, you know, this is a story about my family. Like how does, you know, this just relates to me so much. And it was just an eye-opening experience. Um, And then from there, you know, I I wanted to learn more. I, I wanted to search out Indigenous authors. And when I was in university, I would say is the first time that I was immersed in Indigenous content. Um, So at the University of Winnipeg and most universities in Canada have something called like an Indigenous Student Centre. And so it's just a space for students to study, eat lunch. There's like computers. Um, Our space had Indigenous elders that we could talk to. And it was just like a hub for Indigenous students at the university. And that's when I would say, you know, I, I learned about so many different authors. We had guest speakers. And that's really where I started to read and learn so much more. And, and that speaks to just how far behind or, or how lacking, I guess, the curricula is, that you have to do it on your own within an educational setting. That That's where the, an idea of this type of a book really comes into play to ensure that students have access and they don't have to do it necessarily on their own time, that it gets folded in to the curriculum and it's included as part of the curriculum. So let's talk about that part of it and what's included in the book and I guess the educational value of it, because there's a lot here and there's a lot going on uh, in the book stylistically. And of course, we we know 
indigenous communities across the country, very diverse uh, in their perspectives, in their artwork, uh, in, in their approach to these things. So how did you go about trying to collect a lot of these items? What was the selection process like just trying to edit all this material from what is a very diverse group of individuals that are included in the final version? Yeah, so the process was um, we basically reached out to Indigenous people who are, you know, excelling in their communities and their professions. Um, we have some notable authors such as David Robertson, who uh, submitted a piece. And we basically left it open-ended. We said, you know, our topic is resurgence. That's the name of this book. And we said, write anything or draw or submit anything that has to do with your interpretation of resurgence. And so we really had no idea what we were going to get. Um, and it was just a process of waiting for submissions to come in. And once they started to come in, we, we had to organize it into some sort of like cohesive um, <laughs> format. And we came up with um, the 4R format. And so um, the 4Rs is actually a framework that was created um, by two Indigenous scholars. And we sort of took that idea and made our own 4R framework. And so ours, um, so the book is divided into four parts. And the first one is resistance. And we found um, about four of the pieces talked about resistance to trauma. So intergenerational trauma, residential schools, that type of thing. Um, and then we noticed that, you know, a few more um, pieces fit into the theme of resilience. And so sort of moving beyond that trauma piece and really starting to heal. And then we also noticed um, that a few pieces fit into the theme of restoring. And so restoring language, culture, identity, um, talking about representation. We have a piece called Why Am I Not on Star Trek? and uh, really talking about representation in TV and film. And then the last section is reconnecting. And this one is all about almost like an, an Indigenous futurism type uh, section, where we're really starting to talk about what does the future look like. And in this section, we have um, even like a piece called ethnomathematics. So combining math and culture, and then what does that look like for the field of mathematics? So um, that was just sort of the normal progression that we, we just happened to notice. And so we're really happy that the pieces um, just naturally fell into that. that that's curious because I, I was curious about how you divided that up. So that's retroactive to you have the pieces and you fill the sections within the four R's. And so that's not an intentional thing. But does that speak maybe to things that are happening within Indigenous communities, with Indigenous artists, that they're focused on these themes in their own work. And it, and it just really so happened that it worked out well in terms of organizing the book. Yeah, I would think so. And that was another, it was another major goal for us to move beyond the trauma piece. We didn't just want to focus on, you know, talking about residential schools, talking about the child welfare system. That is very important, but we did want to shed light on um, you know, the resilience and the beauty in our communities. How do we, as someone who has gone through the book and, and looked through the, the pieces, how would we as an audience try to come to these different themes potentially? I feel like a lot of folks today, uh, both from Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities, kind of have at this point preconceived ideas about 
uh, indigenous history and particularly about reconciliation. So how do you, as the person who, or, or one of the people who has, has put together this book, how do you perhaps, or, or was it even an issue, trying to recognize that people will have these uh, preconceived notions? And in terms of organizing the book in this way and using these themes, do you try to perhaps combat or challenge some of those notions that they would be coming to the book with? In a way, yes. At the beginning of every section, we have a part called getting story ready. And so we really prepare our audience for some of the themes and topics that are going to be addressed. Um, We also wanted to make sure that we did this in a trauma-informed way. And so we're not just going to, you know, talk about residential schools right off the bat. We really wanted to get readers ready to, to listen and to understand that topic. Um, so I would say we address it in the becoming story ready um, section of of the book before each before each part. And part of that too, it becomes clear as you go through it is that as as we talked about, there's an education part of the book and the motivation behind putting it all together. But as as the same way as the writers have very diverse perspectives, your audience is going to have very diverse perspectives, particularly the teachers themselves, who in some way have to navigate the various provincial and territorial curricula that exist across the country. We've seen certainly in Alberta how uh, challenging that can be as things get changed. A member of the Ontario provincial legislature uh, had a what I felt was a rather unfortunate rant this week in the legislature about education, uh, really kind of echoing a lot of what we've seen in the United States in the right wing uh, of American politics. So the book is kind of navigating this in some way for teachers to be able to use it. So h- how do you feel like you could create something that would bridge across the country and be something that could be accessible to teachers from coast to coast to coast when there are so many different curricula and really priorities that teachers have to talk about in the classroom? Yeah, so I would say there's probably two parts to that answer. Um, The first one is we intentionally didn't put any specific curriculum um, outcomes in the book just because, you know, there's so many provinces and territories that it just would take up too much space. Um, But of course, curriculum is very similar across the provinces and territories. It's just numbered differently, worded differently, but the meat and bones of it is, is pretty much the same. And then the second part to that is that you're right, that we needed to prepare teachers. And that was, that's our main audience for this book um, is teachers. And we laid out a pathway for them to implement uh, some of these stories into their classrooms. And we also made it so that teachers didn't necessarily have to teach the poem or the story or the essay. Um, They could address these topics in their classroom without actually having to have their students read some of the the material because of course the material is at a little bit of a higher reading level like for example you wouldn't have kindergarteners read the poem because it's just there's too much metaphor and they probably wouldn't understand it but that doesn't mean that students in kindergarten can't talk about families um, so we really wanted to make it accessible for as many different ages as possible, grades, and levels of knowledge. Um, if there's a student in high school who has never learned about 
residential schools, um, they can really start at the beginning and really start talking about, okay, what does it mean to, you know, love your family? What does it mean to, you know, want to go to school and all those types of things? Um, So I would say that was, you know, something we did very intentionally. And I want to also note that when talking about or when teaching about these topics, like we want teachers to do this in a rigorous way. Um, These are not supposed to be, you know, sort of like wishy-washy things to do to take up time. Like this is difficult work and it takes a lot of critical thinking and it takes a lot of language decoding to really understand the material. And so we definitely included that in the book as well. Well, that's interesting because it brings up the idea of meaningful reconciliation, particularly meaningful reconciliation in the classroom, because, you know, I I think what happens sometimes and you can see it and I have friends with a lot of teachers. I I went to a school that primarily people were going to teachers college. I have have teachers in my family. So I I have a bit of a sense of how settler teachers uh, kind of deal with and approach curriculum, at least the ones who who I know. And sometimes what you see or, or what I hear about is that, well, they just they take a, an indigenous story and, and replace a different story with it without really doing that meaningful work with that critical thinking. So how does that maybe affect the way something like this gets put together where in a classroom of first, second, third graders, OK, this story that we're going to read is just it has indigenous characters in it or is an indigenous traditional story versus and that's all it is it's replacing one story with an indigenous story or or in higher levels where you you have similar things where is is that representation meaningful on its own or does it need that extra contextual part in order to be part of a, a process of meaningful reconciliation yeah i would say context is is everything And I think it is more work on the teacher's part because, of course, you know, the teacher has to feel confident to be able to teach about these things and bring them in their classroom. Um, So we do acknowledge that, you know, teachers who engage in this work is it's not easy and it's not something you can just do overnight. Um, It does take practice. It does take, you know, research and reading. And so that's why, you know, that was one of our motivations for creating this is we lay it all out there for teachers. Um, We even have a section at the beginning of every piece that uh, talks about, you know, how can teachers um, address some of these topics, even in a like a professional learning community with other teachers. And so, for example, um, the piece that is called Why Am I Not on Star Trek by Sonia Ballantyne, we we ask teachers, you know, what what is your classroom library look like, and who is represented, and and who is not, and not just talking about indigenous representation, but even, you know, across the genders and other nationalities, um, because these are these are important things to talk about and to think about in your classroom. So we really go even beyond just thinking about the immediate classroom and thinking about the school and larger community in there as well. And. I think a lot of teachers want to. I think there's a, a motivation that they, they recognize the importance of it. But yeah, a lot of teachers seem to just, they're, they're unsure about how to do it. And and you see it pretty frequently on social media where there's a misstep, where maybe someone who is well-meaning uh, has done something in a, a way that actually isn't the best in, in terms of furthering these conversations. And that's why resources like this are so important to provide that guide for teachers who, who 
let's be honest, especially in the last couple of years, are extremely, from what I can tell, overworked or, or stressed out, uh, who are trying to navigate. Essentially, they had to learn an entire new skill of teaching online, something that they hadn't been trained for. And on top of that, put these heavy issues. I, and certainly from your experience as a teacher, right, you would know, like, just really how burdened are teachers in general? And, you know, how much support do they get on the front lines from principals and school districts when they want to put these sorts of things in place, in practice, into a classroom? Yeah, I mean, I can only t- talk from my own experience, and I've I've had a good experience throughout the pandemic. I was really lucky that my school's administration, you know, did as much as they could to support teachers. Um, and I also, you know, I, I happen to be um, a master's student um, taking distance education, so I was already familiar with Zoom and, and being a student in that regard. And so, um, teaching on Zoom wasn't that big of a shock to me. Um, so that was like just a very lucky experience. So I definitely can't um, comment on, on, you know, other teachers, but you're right. I do see that all over social media, that teachers are burnt out and exhausted while, you know, they have so much um, responsibilities adding, being added to their plate. But talking about, you know, non-Indigenous teachers bringing these things into their classroom, I think that's what my co-editor, Katya Ferguson, she's a non-Indigenous teacher. And I think she brings a lot of value with that perspective of it's okay to try to do this. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you're trying and as long as you're learning and unlearning and relearning. And so that's why, you know, I think it's so beneficial that we both got to work on this because she does bring that unique perspective. One of the things that is discussed in some of the material surrounding the book is how much the two of you learned in the process, right? That that was sort of highlighted in some of the stuff that was sent to me in talking about the book. And that's one of those things that I've been lucky enough to contribute to a book that's been published. And when it's published, you're like, oh, like I'm I'm the expert in this. People ask you questions. People are are looking to you for answers. But what you forget at the end of it, or at least what I would forgot about at the end of it, was how much I learned along the way. I wasn't an expert when I started. So for the two of you, what was the learning process like? Uh, you know, you, you were approached by the press to, to work on this. So they obviously had a, a sense of your level of expertise, your level of knowledge going into the project. But what was the learning process like for the two of you? And, and coming out now the other side with the book being out, how would you f- reflect on that and, you know, think about that a couple of years later, just the, the learning process that you went through? Yeah, I mean, and we both uh, walked into it with like a significant amount of knowledge and experience around Indigenous education. Um, I'm getting my master's of education, specializing in Indigenous education. And I think Katya is like getting her PhD in the same thing. And so we we walked into this thinking we had a lot of knowledge. Um, However, we also walked into it with humility and understanding that, you know, we're dealing with different nations. Like, I don't know um, a ton about the Haida Gwaii nation in British Columbia. So I'm not going to walk in there and pretend like, even though I'm Indigenous, I'm an expert in their perspective or, or anything like that. And so it was that humility piece. And I think that's something that we talk about and that we model for teachers really well, because it's important to recognize that you're never going to be an expert in somebody else's perspective. And that's really part of the learning that you have to, to have. And so 
you know, we, we modeled that for, for teachers, I think, throughout the book is that we're approaching this with humility and we are trying to be as respectful as, as possible and ask good questions. And we just want to produce something, you know, that, that students can discuss. Well, that does lead to, or at least me, to the question of then just how do you edit something where that's that, you know, again, the stereotype of editors, certainly in, in like academic context, is that they come down and say, like, I'm all knowing, this is what you're going to do, just change it this way, and then then we'll publish it. And, and it's good to hear that you went into this with a sense of humility. I think as a collective, as a society, we're all missing some humility. We could use more of it. But just on a practical sense, like, how do you edit something where that that is the perspective of and really does it turn basically then into collaboration with the contributors as opposed to editor contributor necessarily? Yeah, I think the term editor is kind of misleading as well, because we didn't actually <laughs> edit anything. Um, we definitely kept the contributors, you know, words as they are. I think we suggested like some grammatical changes. We also had more editors like on a stylistic basis editing the book. Um, But Katya and I, our our job was to format the book and to do that uh, educator connection piece. So we did a lot of writing and and ideas for the book rather than just editing um, what was already submitted. But it was a collaboration. And I should add that even after we thought of the educator connection, so we have in there educator actions. So how can you take the topic and actually um, start you know, producing some action towards reconciliation within the topic? We have um, small group discussion questions that teachers can lead their students through. We have um, reflection questions for students to just sit and reflect on. We have... Um, additional resources, and we also have inquiry project prompts. So it's really like this learning process that we guide teachers through that hopefully they can eventually guide students through. Um, And we took everything back to the contributors and we asked like, you know, are we approaching this in a good way? Are we touching on the topics that um, you wanted students and and teachers to, to notice? And are we asking the right questions? And so we definitely, it was a collaboration in that way that we definitely took everything back to them and, and asked if it was representing them in, in a good way. That was actually going to be my next question about how you were able to put together those educator connection parts and what say the contributors had in that, because obviously you do want to, in those sections, be accurately uh, representing what they were putting forward. But at the same time, certainly in, in some of the cases, they're individuals who don't have the same background in education uh, that, that you have. So at any point, was there any sort of back and forth where there was maybe a misunderstanding or something maybe was misrepresented? Uh, or ju- I, I'm just curious as to sort of, you know, the, the priorities that an artist has versus an educator have, they don't always uh, work in conjunction together. So I'm, I'm just curious as to how that process played out. Yeah, I would say for the most part, um, the contributors, you know, said like, wow, this is so great. Great job. Um, we did have a few that said, you know, you kind of missed this. Like, this is what I'm really talking about. And and so that was a learning experience. <laughs> We're like, okay, you know, that's, that's awesome. And so, so a few of them definitely talked about things that like, oh, you know, you didn't really pick up on this part of it. And, and so we had to go back to the drawing board and make sure we added that in. And, and that's just part of the process. So. Especially when dealing with art, 
right? When you're dealing with art, like there's so many things that as a lay person, I miss whenever I go to like an art, art gallery or poetry. I'm terrible with poetry and picking up on on things in poetry. So, you know, things can just, it's easy to, to me at least, it's easy to miss them uh, if you're not an expert in that art form. And uh, so, so it's good to have then that the artists themselves or the, the poet themselves, or even the writer, if, if it's an essay, to have that person be there in a supportive way to help guide you through the intended meaning. Because one of the things I always say to students when I'm grading is, you know, all I have is the words on the page. I don't necessarily know what you intend to say, right? And, and to have the person there to tell you what they intended to say and what you may have missed uh, in the clues that they always give you is a really good thing to have when you're putting something together for educators. And it can help educators not miss those things themselves, which is key when, when we're working with these sorts of things. So that, that does get us to the question of, we, we've talked about it a little bit, but when somebody picks this up, and as we said, there's the four sections of resistance, resilience, restoring, and reconnecting. Is there a sort of standard process through which they could go through this? Is there, you know, poetry everywhere, art everywhere, if narratives, uh, you know, just what, what should people expect when they come to the book in terms of formatting and how they can most effectively go through and use the four sections? Yeah. Um, and so people can literally pick up the book and read it front to back, or they can select the pieces that they're most interested in reading or viewing. Um, but what I really want to talk about is the learning process that we've created. Um, and so Katya and I really thought about, you know, what does an Indigenous learning process look like? And we really wanted to be uh, more concrete in our book rather than like theoretical. And so we created um, a learning process that um, each piece connects to. And so the first process that we've determined was connecting to self. And in this section, we have student um, reflection prompts where students are meant to just sit and reflect and they can either like write their reflection or it could be something that they verbally respond to the teacher. Um, but after they sit and reflect, after they've engaged with the piece, then it's all about connecting to community. And so this can look like a sharing circle, which is a First Nation um, protocol that is used. And we sort of talk about that in the introduction. Um, in this case, we call it a learning circle because it's a little bit different than um, the traditional use of it. And then is the next section is talking back. So this is the critical literacy part. And we ask students to think about, you know, what stereotypes or what forms of oppression is this piece talking back to? And so students have to sort of think about all those outside influences and the context of the piece to be able to do this part. Um, and then the final part is inquiry. And so this is where um, students get to select a a topic within the piece that really resonated with them and they get to take that learning further. So they have to do their own research and answer or develop their own research question, research the answer, what is the best answer? And then they have to produce something, whether it's an essay or a presentation um, to answer their own research question. And so this was sort of the, the learning framework that we've developed. And after each piece, um, we have all of those questions ready, mapped out for teachers. That's really great because guiding the, that process that in a way that not only kind of 
works from a pedagogical perspective, but for students who might be new to these themes, who might be new to this stuff, that feels to me like a very supportive way to do it too, that you, you get to sit with it, but then you get to deal with it as a community uh, within the class, right? That that feels supportive to me and in a very safe way uh, to help students through this. And when, when you talk about indigenous ways of learning, I, I, I often think that people hear like this and like, or, or are about different ideas and like, oh, they just want to, the, the perspective they have is they just want to change everything and uh, totally upend the system and throw out everything that everyone's ever done in, in pedagogy. But that that's not what it is. It's, it's coming up with ways that are, I don't want to say better because that sounds way too judgmental, but are, are different ways of learning, of, of building the community and building a space for kids to learn and to share and to just develop their perspectives. And that's really what this feels like to me. And, and I'm curious, have you had any resistance to this from people? Again, I, I referenced it earlier, that, that sort of right wing, really American style resistance to new ideas in classrooms. Has that come up at all for you? Um, no, it ha- luckily it has not come good, up yet, good. Um, although, you know, we can always anticipate that. But one thing I'd like to note is that a lot of these modern pedagogical approaches, such as, you know, student-centered or child-centered learning, is based on Indigenous philosophies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just like not given that credit. And so I think there's a really a natural fit to w- the way education is moving today um, to fit in Indigenous pedagogies because we we name them as such but often they're just not understood as such yeah that's a really good point and yeah everyone wants student-centered learning now but yeah that's what this is that's what you just described yeah. <laughs> uh in the process in the book is student-centered learning it's, and every like even at, even at the the university level where I, I teach occasionally you get that everyone's like student-centered learning student-centered learning and I, i've often wondered what actually does that mean at, at sort of the deepest level other than saying, well, we're, the students can ask more questions. Well, okay, like, uh, but it, it but the, and this kind of lays it out, uh, it, uh, certainly in a more meaningful and, and coherent way than I certainly could uh, when someone would ask me about student-centered learning. Uh, so, uh, again, like, if we wanted to, and I hate to do this, but uh, you know, again, for individuals across the country, from St. John's to Victoria. Uh, into the north, like from from all corners of the country. Um, what do you think the benefits are of implementing this type of approach and using these type of resources in the classroom? Like everyone seems to want to do it and everybody gives at least lip service to wanting to do it. But what are some of the concrete benefits of actually putting it into place, putting it into practice in classrooms across the country? I mean, I, I would say the number one benefit is just increased knowledge. And hopefully these are something, these are pieces that students can see themselves reflected in. And we have many, you know, topics presented in the novel. We even have an Indigenous architect student talk about indigenizing architecture. And so we hope that there is, you know, something for every student, whether they're interested in architecture, whether they're interested in TV and film, whether they're interested in history, um, it really should touch on a lot of students' interests. And that's really my goal is, you know, getting students interested in what they're learning about. 
And the biggest challenge too of I'm sure all teachers of is getting the students interested in what they're learning about. And uh, and this is a great way to do it. So again, the book is Resurgence. Uh, Christine, if people want to pick up a copy of it, uh, get some more information on it, both on the content itself in the book, the art, the poetry, the the essays, but also on the the resources that are available for educators. What's the best way for them to tap into uh, this tremendous resource? Yeah, so they could go to the website at www.portageandmainpress.com. And they can also visit my own website at www.christinemalott.com. All right. And uh, check the show notes below. If you're listening to this on your app, I will link to all that. Uh, And if you're on the website over at Active History, it'll all be linked in the post there. So I encourage everybody to check it all out. Uh, Just a a tremendous resource available. So Christine Malott, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. My discussion with Christine Malott. And again, I thank her for taking the time to join me. And again, the book is Resurgence and so many resources available here. And and as I said at the start, you could just pick this up and read it and go through it uh, for your own interest if you want. Uh, But again, the target audience is teachers and certainly would encourage you if you are a teacher, if you're an educator, I, I think you will really benefit from picking this up. But again, if you want to Grab it and go through it. Look, read some, look through the material, read some of the pieces yourself. You're not going to regret it. Like, there's a lot here, even if you're not working in an education setting. So, again, I, I, just a wonderful resource and a wonderful book that is now available. And as I said, we will link to everything in the show notes or over on the website in the post that will accompany this episode over on activehistory.ca. So, with that, That's going to be it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. Do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps us grow the show, helps other people find out about us here on the History Slam. And of course, you can head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are available under the podcast tab, plus all of the great written material on the website. And as always, if you got something that you want to say, and you're a historian or a history buff and you want to write for us, you know, we're always looking for great pieces to share with folks. So you certainly do feel free to write in. Let us know if you have some ideas. Uh, we're always excited to hear from new contributors over there on the website. And of course, you can let me know what you might want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com or I am on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that's it for this week. We'll be back with you again next week for another new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>